Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is a survey out. Now, this is an American study. It's an American survey. So the numbers may be different here, but I I suspect that probably they're not that far off. We generally, in these kind of things, we're not that far away. And what this says is a survey that was done by Gallup, and it asked people about their trust in the media. And, you know, people are always going to say the media is biased. That's okay. That's been going on since the dawn of time. What's different about this survey is the real level of seeming animus towards it, where half of the people taken in this survey believe not that just that the media was biased, but that the media has an intent to disinform. It has an attempt to misinform, to mislead, to, well, that, whatever. That, that is a, as soon as you get into that, now we're talking about real lack of trust in what is being what is being given. Don Gibb is a professor emeritus of journalism at Toronto Metropolitan University. He is a man who's been in the journalism business for a long, long, long time. Joins us now. Don, how are you tonight? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing and great. Maybe your listeners should know that you were in my first class back in the last century. A long, long, long time ago. <laughs> yes. Well, this, so I don't know if back then these same numbers would have popped up. And as I say, I think there's always been this, this idea that the media is biased. And that's, that's a different one that we can deal with at another time. This is something different though. If we are talking about a belief that 50% of people say the, the now the national media, not local, we'll get to local in a second, but that the <laughs> national media attempts to spread misinformation that is a huge problem isn't it uh, yeah i find that i find i find that really scary because having spent my entire life uh, basically in a career where the idea was to search for the truth and find the truth and and uh, uh, it, it, it shocks me that, that there are that many people who would believe that in fact that's not your job that's not what you do, that you're doing, in fact, precisely the opposite of that. Well, that, this, that yeah, this doesn't show, Don, this isn't showing a lack of ability. This is showing malice. That's what this is. This is actually saying you're intending to mislead. Right. Yeah. And, and, that, and that, that was, that was, that's never the intent of, uh, of good journalism. Okay, so how did we get here? How did we get? I think we got here in, in several, several ways. Um, uh, certainly, uh, certainly, uh, uh, this loss of, of trust or respect or uh, it has been caused with misinformation and disinformation uh, in the last, certainly in the last decade, and uh, and people are going online. They're going online to find to find their sources of news uh, from people who basically have have no have no training in in gathering information in in reporting facts and reporting the truth. These people, uh, they find people online who support their point of view. That's what people seem to want to do. They, they, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're more, they're more cynics than healthy skeptics. I always think being a healthy skeptic is, is, is a very good quality to have. It's where you question things. You ask, well, how do you know that? Uh, why did this happen? Um, to me, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the role of the reader. That's what I do when I'm reading. I, I, I take information in. And and I process it and determine whether I support that point of view or don't support that point of view. But I don't think people do that these days. I think they're more cynical. Uh, that's that's one that's one reason. The other thing too is that that um, there's so much information coming at us. That's the that's the problem. Yeah, I I, I I'm retired now, of course, and I I see this and I face it, and it's it can be numbing and it can be hard to figure out what's fact and what's not fact. 
And I have, I have to confess, and I think some of these studies are showing this, I have to confess that I sometimes take a no news day just to clear my mind. I just, I just decide... I'm not watching anything today. I just need to clear my mind. Uh, what what so, I find so interesting, and I yeah. think you're right about something with whether whether it's online or or social media, whatever. But it seems as though, as you've alluded to, that people will see something on social media that comes from a not reliable source necessarily, right? But then believe that over. The media that has people presumably as professionals, but they'll say then not that the source who could be Joe Blow in his basement is wrong. They'll say, well, he must be right because the media obviously is misleading us. I'm not sure where that – what has built that chasm that you would disbelieve the people who are professional but believe the person who is whoever. Yeah, and I think the person whoever in the basement or or whatever, I think they've helped – produce that too by saying you can't trust the mainstream media you can't trust any of the media people at all you can trust me and 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 again if that person is supporting your point of view right it's it's very easy to buy into it isn't it it's very easy to sort of say yeah yeah i agree i agree with you uh, because and from what i've been told too is if if you go on if you if you go into social media and you're going to cert, you go to a certain area to find some information you'll keep getting information back from those sources so you're being fed you're being fed information that you that you want that you, the that echo you chamber. believe yeah the you, echo chamber you'll get more of it so you continue to believe that point of point of view so and is, others are just trying to feed you a line. So is there a way back from this then? Or or is it in irrevocably broken and the media just has to acknowledge, you know what, we're going to talk to the people then who believe us and not talk to those who don't? That's a very good point, Scott. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've thought about this uh, today, too, about about what, what do you do? What's what's the answer? I wish the hell I had the answer to all of this, and I, and I don't. But there's a whole generation growing up uh, that, that, that don't, that don't uh, read newspapers, that don't read magazines, that, that basically have turned away from television, too. They're, they're basically online. And, and um, uh, so, so that's, that's, that's where they that's where they live that's where they get their information and and they haven't they haven't um they haven't and don't want to sort of um see see other points of view or read other read other read other uh, get information in other words from a lot of sources there's always been on tv on in newspapers wherever radio for sure there's always been people who have been opinion generators they are people who have come on and been analysts they've given their opinion i can go back to whenever there were always people who were opinion people but there were also then those who were just straight news it seems as though now sometimes those lines get blurred. Is that something that people running newspapers, websites, TV, radio, everything else, is that something they should be trying very much to disentangle? That's a very good point also. Is it, is it, is it the fact is that I don't know whether people really understand the difference between what is news and what is commentary. The fact that somebody is writing a column, their own point of view, and... Um, with with a particular slant, and I and I'm not sure that people still get that. And I think newspapers, I think newspapers, broad, all broadcast outlets, they they need to let people know uh, why they cover certain stories. Why are these important to them, to the community, and in real terms, what you lose without a reliable source of information. Mm. Whether that helps or not, I really don't know. I I think people have made up their own minds on. On this, but uh, but I, I I still I still believe that that people. It's a sad thing to say, but people don't realize what they've lost until their community has lost 
an important outlet, an important newspaper, an important voice. They don't realize what mm. they've lost. Um, and, and that's the sad reality, basically. Yeah, Don, I mean, I don't know why this name just popped to mind as we're talking, but I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and I would, uh, for some reason, I was into news when I was a kid and I would watch sometimes City TV in Toronto when the City Pulse News, once upon a time, and Dick Smythe had his commentary. You always knew. Dick was a, you know, he was a, yes, whatever. Yeah. But you knew because it was clearly, and I don't know why his name just popped to mind. You knew that he was giving his opinion because it was clearly identified as this is his opinion, this is his yeah. commentary, but everything else was not that. So you knew this is that and everything else is something else. Now it's, it seems much, much more murky. That's, that's the key word. It is, it is murkier. And, um, and it seems that it seems that we have more and more people who, who want to be commentators rather than news gatherers. When in fact, the most important thing to me is, is that, that, that news gatherers still have to stick to the facts that they gather. That's what it's all about. And not, a, not, not introduce opinion into this sort of thing. And, and newspapers need to clearly spell out. I mean, they, they've been trying to do this, I know, and, and broadcast too have been trying to spell out. Um, who, who's making a comment, who basically uh, is simply giving a point, their own point of view rather than the news. But I think, I think it's shaded sometimes, and I think uh, uh, listeners and readers still don't get that, that difference. It's a really interesting one. The, uh, the study, again, it's by Gallup. You can, uh, you can find it online. The study shows striking, quote, striking number who believe news misinforms. Uh, Don Gibb from Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's good to talk to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to uh, Canada's national website and Canada statistics, there are about 320,000 federal employees in this country. It's a lot of employees. Uh, seems about 300,000 of them, or almost all of them, are in negotiations now for a new contract. And so far, by the sounds of it, this is not going all that well, at least with some of them. Uh, negotiations have broken off between the Treasury Board and 120,000 workers represented by the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Uh, that's because they want waged increases that match inflation. The government says, no, no, we're offering way less than that because that's you know, 6.5%, give or take a year. Hmm. Where is this going to go? Let me go to Tim Powers. He is someone who will know the answer to this. He is the chair of Summer Strategies. It's a man you hear on this show and everywhere else. I just saw him on TV a few minutes ago. He's everywhere, but he's with us now. Tim, thanks for doing this. Well, Scott, I did it because you play the great big C. You're emulating the other <laughs> Scott there. So good, good man, good man. Where do we go with this? Because I, I, on the one hand, I see the federal government saying we don't want to end up with a giant strike and inconvenience the population and then the people get mad at us and they take it out on us. On the other hand, the government says, but we're trying to make sure we keep costs under control. And I'm not sure that a giant wage increase to all the federal employees is going to do that. Where do they go? Well, and uh, add into that equation two other things. One, they've just done a deal with the provinces on health care, as you know. Uh, and, and along with that deal is coming a budget where they're talking a little bit more about fiscal restraint, whatever that may mean for this government. And on top of that, they politically do not want a summer like they had last year. And you'll remember, Scott, passport offices not working. Right, exactly. Um, immigration uh, re reform and people trying to get uh, credential to come into the country not working. 
The other element, so I'll give you a third element, is certainly there are some key liberal ridings in which there are a lot of civil servants, so they don't want to lose those ridings. So I begin to wonder if the give for the federal government is going to be on days in the office, because you will know that has been something that uh, has been very contentious, something the Peace Act, the union that represents the vast majority of public sector workers, has been saying, you know, they want to see, they want to see some of this entrenched alternative work, working from home, becoming more common, because I don't think they can pay them um, certainly anywhere near what Peace Act is asking for at the moment. And I, I guess, sorry, I'm throwing a lot at you, under the Trudeau government, um, the public service has risen significantly, and I don't want to be unkind to public servants, but if you're judging performance, um, has that increase of staff enhanced government performance? Well, and and that goes to the rest of the taxpayers, because the numbers uh, in 2018, there were less than 275,000. Now there's 320 or more thousand. I mean, we're up by, uh, you know, 45,000 new employees. um, And during COVID, as far as I know, none of them got laid off. None of them got fired. And I think they all got raises during COVID. I do wonder if the taxpayers are looking at this and saying, yeah, I don't really have much of an appetite to keep giving the federal workers endless increases. But you're right. I also don't see the taxpayers having any appetite to go to the passport office or wherever else and not have service this summer. So, again, it seems like you're sort of in a rock and a hard place that you've partially created. Like many of the problems that that this government's currently dealing with. I mean, what was the story a couple of weeks ago, the money that McKinsey and other consulting firms have gone up because you have this weird dichotomy of government employees growing, the number of government employees, and also consulting. I think it's doubled since uh, $8 billion in 2015-16 to $15 billion now. Government's not afraid to spend money, so maybe this is what PSAC is is counting on that they will spend a little bit more but you know i don't know if there's a broader political appetite appetite excuse me for a significant increase here um given some of the things we've we've already discussed so uh there may in fact be a strike and there may be some political advantage to all of that but point is this thing isn't up until april uh so there's still two months to go PSAC has always been very good at posturing to see if that posturing brings about pressure because certainly this government and other governments to be fair are not fun of being uh, carved apart in the media but i i can tell you in ottawa where the most public servants are it, it, at least in the mainstream kind of day-to-day conversation, is not the overriding governmental news story, and for whatever that may mean. There is one other thing that uh, that, that I might want to throw into the mix here, and it, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. But there is a uh, a particular leader of the NDP who is propping up this government, and uh, the NDP generally, as a rule, tends to support unions getting more than less. And uh, I'm, I question if the prime minister would be concerned about losing the support of Jagmeet Singh if they were too strict with the unions. Possibly, but the trade-off there may be pharmacare, as you know. I, I think that I think Singh would pick pharmacare over federal uh, public servants' uh, significant wage increases, and you'll know that he's been uh, rattling the cage a little bit about that. I think we'll know more 
come um, come the budget uh, in the next couple of months, because then the government does tend to have to book the monies that it's going to put out the door uh, at that time. So we'll we'll get some sense then. But I wouldn't say that thing. Thing will determine the fate of the government based on whether the civil services is, is uh, gets or uh, gets an increase or doesn't get an increase. Everybody listening right now can have their own point of view on this one, but I still want to hear yours. And that is, which would which do you think, Tim, would be more problematic to a government? the The thing you describe, where passport offices or any other public federal buildings and offices are not available, and so people are inconvenienced, is that a bigger problem to the federal government, or is a lot more spending that suddenly becomes public a bigger problem to the government if people learn that the federal civil servants are getting bigger increases? They, uh, well, I, I don't think the Trudeau government wants to play into the hands of Pierre Polyev. Once Polyev ceases, everything is broken. And again, he will point to things like the passport offices. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau, remember how he once got in 2015? He was the, well, the only one of the three major federal party leaders who said it was okay to do spending and deficit spending. Again, his history over the last eight years or nearly eight years has been he's not been afraid to spend. But I don't think they want to have a summer like they did last summer, um, particularly if they're, you know, a year or two out from an election. Just before I let you go, would this be the kind of moment when you look back in retrospect as a federal government and say, I can't remember the name of the backbencher, I think it was a conservative backbencher, but I might be wrong, who back in COVID said, we should take a pay cut to lead by example. Is this the moment when you look back and go, you know, we're paid pretty well. If we had taken 5 or 10%, that might have been a good thing that we could have then pulled back and, and shown that we led by example here. Yeah, maybe. And, and again, not championing Polyev here, but look what he recently did with his MPs. He made them, if they were paying for cable television through their office budgets, to stop doing that. So that's the kind of symbolism in politics, right. as you rightly allude to, Scott, that can be very potent. Yeah. All of a sudden, hey, we took a pay cut, so we expect that you're going to maybe follow to some degree as well. And if you don't, why would they, you know, if you wouldn't take it? And, and as I recall, and I can't remember the name of that backbencher, but as I recall, yeah, they I laughed at his, prop, at his proposal. We'll see if... Well, and uh, don't forget, though, don't forget, Christian Freeland did make a big sacrifice. She cut Disney Plus. So maybe that counts. <laughs> I forgot that one. Yes, you're right. All right. All raises are back on the table. Uh, Tim Powers, chair of Summer Strategies. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Scott. Night. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are of a certain vintage, as we like to call it, uh, there is a name of someone from around here. And when I say here, I mean Southern Ontario, not just Toronto, who instantly, instantly, snap your fingers, instantly when you say his name will elicit a response. Uh, not around anymore. If you're not of that vintage, you may not even know who we're talking about. But for those who are, Harold Ballard, even to this day, still people who were alive and around and old enough to remember him still will instantly have thoughts of Harold Ballard if you say his name. Well, there is a new documentary out about him. It's on CBC Gem. You can watch it there. It's called Offside, the Harold Ballard Story. It is uh, it is narrated by Jason Priestley. Uh, most people would probably remember of 90210 fame. It is uh, executive produced by Michael Geddes, who joins me now. Michael, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. 
You know, I was thinking before you came on, I thought, you know, people will often say, why Harold Ballard? I was I was thinking the other way. I can't believe nobody has done this before. I can't believe you guys are first to the dance on this. Yeah, and rarely am I first to the dance uh, being a producer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, we, when I dove into this, it's one of those things a producer, a TV producer, film producer does is you kind of have to do that uh, first pass to say, Am I late to the party? And in this case, uh, we we were first to the party, and it was it was great to be able to do a deep dive that nobody uh, has done on what is a great story at the end of the day um, about a a character who lived in this country and made headlines all throughout the '60s, '70s, and '80s. And uh, I think the other the other bucket I immediately was able to tick is is what a character and there's probably during those decades there was nobody bigger a uh, character in canada than harold ballard no no I, I mean you would you would probably and again if if people aren't old <laughs> enough to remember this they're they're gonna think we're crazy but w- fair to say that probably of because newspapers didn't publish on sundays for most of the time he was alive but out of six days a week that there would be a paper harold ballard would find himself in the toronto papers three or four of those easily yeah, and he he knew what he was doing in that respect. There's been many people, and we early started to say he perhaps was Trump before Trump. Huh. He he knew uh, how to get headlines, uh, and you could you could argue that Trump took a few uh, a few uh, plays out of Harold's playbook. So, you know, anytime Harold uh, meddled with the media, he had one thing in mind, and that was to get his name front and center. Um, of course, it, it didn't help the team, but when you say character, there was there were really no boundaries on Harold. And back then, you know, owners of sports teams, they were they were, it was the Wild West. They, they were cowboys, and they ran unchecked. They reported to nobody. I mean, in this case, uh, Maple Leaf Gardens Limited was a public company. Harold reported to a board, but when you own seventy percent of the team, as he eventually mm-hmm. did in the early seventies. Uh, anybody who stood up to him, uh, say in a uh, AGM meeting, even his answer was always, "If you don't like it, I'm, I'll buy your shares." So, you know, he he ran in a. You can't do that anymore. The, there's the leagues all have constitutions that don't allow owners to operate outside of the lines, or else they will be removed. Um, but back then, that certainly wasn't the case. I have used, I've read the word, um, there's one word that seems to come up in a few of the reviews of your documentary, and that's tumultuous, the tumultuous Harold Ballard years. I don't know that tumultuous fully captures what was going on in the years that he was the guy running Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point. For me, this documentary, I lived I lived through those years. I was, I was born in the, uh, in 63, and if you want to do some quick math, I'm turning 60 this year, but you know, I lived through that and I remember um, those years. Um, but a lot of people had forgotten the Ballard era. Um, because let's face it, he died 30 years ago. So, is that right? Is it that long? Holy yeah, cow. He died I, in 1990. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. so the, for me, what a callback to uh, that era. And, you know, you forget, boy, you don't have a lot to whine about present day when you saw the way things <laughs> used to be. So, that's the first kind of thing I like to put out there. Um, things are pretty good in uh, Leaf Nation, despite everything you hear uh, when they lose, you know, they have a two-game losing streak. So, um, 
but you know, for the generation younger than me, they've only heard rumors about Ballard. They've 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 heard about you know uh, all the misgivings and the tumultuous time that you talk about. And there's there's many ways to explain it, but it's a real uh, education for the, for that generation for sure. Um, and it's it's only going to enlighten and inform, and again, let them know that yeah, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment is is running the team a way a team should be run, but that was not always the case. Well, younger people also, I think, would have a really hard time, even if they watch your documentary. I think they may have a really hard time mm-hmm. believing some of the stuff you're saying because. We live in a time now where if you're, say, Donald Sterling, who owned, who owned the L.A. Sure. Clippers, I mean, sure. one or two bad words, words that clearly have no place in sports, but one or two, the team gets taken away from you. Harold Ballard made a – that was all he did a lot of the yeah. time. I mean, the, the stuff that Harold Ballard did once upon a time, people today, I'm sure if they had never been alive for it, couldn't fathom you could do that stuff. Yeah, I mean, some some of it can be forgiven because uh, what people didn't know is, and I, I and and I'm not for forgiving it, but but just the way he was as a cowboy, forgetting some of the the things he said about, you know, being a misogynist and, you know, xenophile, and it goes on and on and on. The 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 thing that uh, people don't realize is when he took control of the team, Harold was a 68 year old man, born in 1903. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not changing anybody at 68. So he was from the old boys club and certainly old schooled. And here he was in the early 70s. He had control of the team. He had certainly had something to prove. He really probably didn't know what he had gotten himself into, but all he knew is the one thing, and he was a showman right down to his DNA. And his way of being a showman was to get himself out front and center. And you know. He had a lot of latitude to make mistakes. Uh, he oh, he knew the Toronto sports uh, fans were always going to have bums and seats at Maple Leaf Gardens. So when that's the case, I don't think he ever had a grand business plan. He was incredibly impulsive, and he you know ran one day to the next. Yeah, and he yeah. owned what everybody wanted. I mean, the, the Blue Jays, yeah. for part of the time that he was there, yeah. the Blue Jays didn't exist. The Raptors sure didn't exist. Um, no. You know, all those other teams. Like, he was the show in town and owned the one building in town where you could yeah. put concerts and everything else. He really, whether you liked him, thought he was a buffoon or whatever, he yeah. he had full control. Yeah, the, the biggest, arguably one of the most important and biggest institutions in the country was, yeah, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs. So he, he was well aware of that. It was clear. And uh, that's just back to that. He ran unchecked um, he, he, to the point where, you know, it was interesting, you know, nobody will ever figure Harold out and why he operated the way he did because it was so hard for him to get to that, the, the pinnacle, the top of the mountain where he finally owned the team and got control of it in 1971. And then you would think he'd want to carry on and win and want to win and want to be proud of what he had accomplished and his legacy, but he didn't. And that's the very complex man that we kind of go into in the documentary which nobody really has an answer for. And we leave the viewer uh, mm-hmm. kind of wanting more and maybe leaving the viewer to have their own take on Harold. You know, do you, did you take it as you were doing this? The one word that kept coming to mind as I watched it was he's self-destructive, but I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, self-destructive and what I just said with, with the team, he wouldn't invest in the team. He wouldn't, 
He wouldn't cherish his prized assets, his players. He let them go if, you know, uh, they asked for more money, something as very simple as a raise and being recognized. I mean, you, you get when things got really bad in the 80s. And here you've got a, a, a gentleman, Rick Vive, one of the best captains they've ever had in the history, having three 50 goal seasons in a row. Ballard gave him a T set. I mean, he didn't get a raise, he got a T set. And can you imagine that, you know, Austin Matthews, we got a 60-goal scorer on the team. If, if any Leaf nowadays had a had a three 50-goal <laughs> seasons in a row, um, you know, that's a game changer. He, that, that makes for, you know, that's the franchise right there. And back then, Ballard was the franchise. Um, he always, again, he, always he was the star. Seats. Yeah, he, was he was the star. The and, and when I say self-destructive, it's not just with the team. He clearly, it yeah. seems anyway, didn't yeah. care that you didn't like him. He, he went out of his way to be obnoxious. He wouldn't allow anyone to know when he did nice things, like give money for charities, yeah. you weren't allowed to talk about it. There was something strange that it almost seemed watching it and, and going back to those days that for whatever reason, he thrived on being hated rather than in being liked he did he 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 wanted an image he wanted to be i guess feared um kind of again look at trump today um he wanted to be a little feared but then he had a he did have a heart he did random acts of kindness and quite frankly many many of those have come my way since this documentary went into production the anecdotes and the stories i've heard uh so yeah he was a, he was a paradox i mean mm -hmm. He wouldn't let people think. I think Don Cherry said it. He didn't want anybody to know he was a nice. He, you know, he could be a nice guy. He wanted the tough guy image. He wanted he wanted to have that out there, twenty four seven. So, yeah. And if and if the other uh, pillar of you know the, the other the other stream of people we talked to other than players in this documentary was the the media, the sports journalists, the press, and you know they rubbed up against him. But what a love hate relationship, you know. They both understood that they needed each other. But if there was somebody that Ballard just uh, didn't like, he banned them from the uh, from the building. And he could do that. He could do that, that at that time. It's that. really interesting you mentioned Don Cherry and the players, the media too, to a degree. But often as you're watching this, it's clear that some of the players anyway really don't know still what they're supposed to think of the man. There's, they do have seemingly mm -hmm. a soft spot, but they at the same time hate his guts. It's, there's this mm -hmm. conundrum with trying to figure out whether I like him or whether I look at him as in a negative way all these years later. Yeah, the one thing in the documentary and getting the players on board and, you know, we got all the, you know, we got Sittler, the captain, Sittler and Vive and Wendell Clark um, all had different experiences along the way. And once the captains were on board and were free to just talk about their experiences, you know, because we made it so clear to them, we don't want to pile on to the very public and well-tread story of Ballard, public villain, number one. That's been done. Um, we're not looking to pile on. So we just want to hear about your experiences. And, and you know, we had that, uh, that trust from them. And then we obviously got the, the media on side. So, yeah, I mean... They all had different experiences, and I and I go right to the, the start and the finish. I mean, you've got you've got some players that loved Ballard. Um, the start of Ballard's reign, Tiger Williams was an early addition to the Leafs roster. Tiger Williams and loved Ballard. Um, it's, he states it in the documentary. 
And it's probably because they understood each other as showmen. Uh, Tiger's role on the leaf, Leafs, uh, his job was very simple. He was out there as an enforcer and to be an entertainer and to stir things up. Um, very similar to Ballard. And Ballard appreciated a guy like that on the ice. Then you fast forward to somebody like Wendell Clark, who joined the team in uh, the very crazy 80s, uh, in the last five or six years of Ballard's life, and quickly was you know thrust onto the, uh, the podium as a leader on the team at 18 years old, and eventually made, was made captain, but he loved Ballard as well, and so they had, but mm. for different reasons. And in between, the tumult of Sittler and his experiences in Vive and, you know, Lehman and many others, and we could have talked to many players, but oh, sure. I think we really, we really got a who's who in there. And um, Don Cherry and Alan Eagleson, you know, throwbacks to the, the 60s, so that new Ballard. So mm. it was great to have everybody you know, on the tour with us. We are, uh, we're talking to Michael Geddes, who's, who's executive producer of Offside, the Harold Ballard story. Uh, you can watch it on CBC Gem. It's a free service if you want to go and look it up. Um, one of the interesting things, too, and one of the reasons I specifically wanted to have you on is we're not in Toronto. Obviously, we're in Hamilton. It's an interesting mm. dynamic because in Toronto, Harold Ballard is clearly has a, as you've described, a well-defined, although complicated relationship with the people of uh, everything is is there with the Leafs here now I was not in Hamilton when Harold Ballard was owning the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh -huh. but I've been here for a long time since and the sense and the feeling about Harold Ballard that I get here is vastly different because here running the Tiger Cats he loved the team he helped mm -hmm. the team win he put money into the team he did everything here that he seemingly refused to do to the Maple Leafs. I don't understand it, but I I get the sense, and people who are listening can text me and tell me I'm way off base. I get the sense here he's a far more, if not beloved figure, then certainly a far more sympathetic figure in Hamilton than he would be in Toronto. Well, yeah, I mean, he he delivered a great cup uh, during his time and, and many, I think, great cup appearances, two or three other appearances. Um, so that, that, that certainly has a lot to do with it, I would think. And if Ballard ever won a cup in his reign over the Leafs, I, I wonder what people would be thinking, you know, and that's all it would have maybe taken. He would have been viewed differently, but just yeah, as, I mean, just as an oddball then, if he'd won as opposed yeah, to as just, a loser, you know, um, just as, just as a, a bit of a, 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 one of those cowboy clownish owners, um, but who knows? I mean, you can't forgive some of the things he did clearly um, uh, and very, very publicly. So, but it's Hamilton's interesting because I also think, you know, Ballard wanted to own a football team for a long time. You know, he wanted to prove that he was beyond just hockey as an owner and a titan in sports. He tried to get a Toronto team for many years, couldn't, tried to acquire the Argonauts, couldn't. Um, Hamilton came up on the radar. He was able to buy it for a song. And then I think, and this is my theory, I think he loved the fact that now he had sibling rivals. He had a football team that he had to very quickly show a lot of love for in order to get the Leafs, uh, knowing that, you know, there's another, there's another uh, kid in the house. And uh, to the point where, and I don't know what his motivations were, but, you know, to put the ha Hamilton Ticats logo on Maple Leaf Gardens ice surface, yeah. I mean, 
What does that say to your players when you do that? At a time um, when the Argos still mattered, really, in Toronto, too. Well, yeah, and the Argos mattered then. And and but he, he, and I know it was to, you know, to, to rub the Argos fans' faces in it, but, you know, that was on on the Toronto Maple Leafs' watch. And, and that just, uh, I wonder what the players thought about that. Um, well, it know, takes I, me back, Michael, to what I was saying a few moments ago and what you were talking mm-hmm. about a few moments ago, where mm-hmm. it seemed as though he thrived on being the bad guy being the 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 hated figure and i do wonder sometimes if his love of the tie cats which i i think from everything i've seen and talked to people about was legitimate but if that was more of a love of the tie cats or just a vehicle to really stick it to the people in toronto and be more hated in toronto yeah i i i tend to think it's the latter um you know um with no disrespect to uh, how the people of Hamilton who love their tie cats and, you know, Ballard was clearly into it. And it, you know, it could be something as simple as he also needed something to do in the summer when, you know, so they complimented each other, but to drag the, uh, the two together and cross promote, uh, that's a tough thing to do, you know, cross promote leagues, but he did it back then. So yeah, it's, uh, and it was, you know, once he won, it, it, you have to also remember in the 80s, Harold, uh, his health was declining. Uh, it was clear he was he was not able to make good decisions either. And I think cognitively he, he was declining, you know, and those are the Yolanda years. And those are the years, the last years of his life that people really remember when uh, the madhouse got madder and, uh you know, the headlines became a little different and there was a lot going on in his personal life that kind of got into the news with uh, his kids. And, you know, it was just a, Mm. it wasn't a pleasant time for anybody. We got to let you go. We got only have a minute or two left here, but um, how much does this also, I mean, obviously it's a story about Harold Ballard and it's a terrific story. I would encourage everyone to watch it. I absolutely loved it. The time just flew by watching it. I'm not just saying that because you're on here. I I would say that regardless. It was fantastic to watch, but thank you. I also wonder how much this is a story just about Harold Ballard and how much as a secondary part, it's a story about the time. And I'll tell you why I mean that there is a, a an interview that you come back to a few times that was done by Adrian Clarkson when she was with mm-hmm. the CBC. Mm-hmm. And that interview today and the things that Harold Ballard says with a huge smile on his face, like he's being mischievous even as he's saying it. But some of the stuff today, an interviewer who was, he would be, destroyed for some of the stuff that he says. And yet Adrian Clarkson at certain points even laughs as the answers are coming. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder what it also says about how different we are with what we will accept someone saying, or even someone rich or famous getting away with. I don't know. It just, it seemed like it was also really reframing how different we are in every way. Yeah. It was a different time, the seventies and eighties. Um, I think, Still to, you know, I think there's a level playing field now between the cancel culture and people that run unchecked. And, and you know, present day example is, is Donald Sterling um, and many others. But I think back then, everybody still knew that they had to put up with him. They had to put up with it. He, you know, he was, he was the, you know, he had the uh, crown jewels. He he had the Toronto Maple Leafs, and 
they put up with it. And maybe, you know, the laughter that you talk about is, I think it's a nervous laughter, but he uh, just some of his answers in that, you know, interview, which was in 1980 for the fifth estate, uh, just just had a level of uh, arrogance, just, just norms. And back then there were norms. He just didn't say some of those things, but he still did. And nobody was going to change Harold Ballard. And that that's uh, that's what this story really is to me. It's a rise and a fall. And as much as this is, you know, in this country, a hockey story, you know, internationally, this is this is going to be going out into countries around the world. Uh, we're positioning it as a story about a scoundrel, a story about a rise and a fall that just happens to be about a sports owner. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And it just happens to be a, an NHL hockey team, but it's, it's really interesting it's a character piece. Any chance that this becomes an, an actual biopic or something? Because again, I was watching it thinking this, there, you know, yeah. to to play this out more than a documentary. I don't know who could possibly play Harold Ballard, but boy, there's something well, there. We're, it's funny you should say that. We're very much uh, down the road on that, and this really? project all started as a scripted uh, biopic. And because of a few things, which it's a very, very tall mountain to climb to get a biopic and a movie done on a, on a person uh, in this country. And, you know, COVID came along and made it even tougher. So we had to put a pin in it. But the light bulb then went off because uh, we have a tremendous script by uh, one of the executive producers on the documentary, uh, Chuck Tatham. And Jason Priestley is uh, attached as director on, on this scripted project. But we put a pin in it for the time being and it was just so clear we had to do a documentary and we got this documentary uh, up on its feet and now the documentary becomes the biggest sales tool to do something as you just mentioned and we're planning on doing a four by one hour mini series on his on Harold. That would be so, uh, that would be terrific. Yeah, that would be. I I look forward to that. the uh, The documentary before the miniseries, the documentary is called "Offside: The Harold Ballard Story." As I've said, uh, people can find it on CBC Gem. Michael Geddes is the executive producer. Michael, thank you for doing this. Really, really appreciate the talk today. And and again, fantastic job on the uh, documentary. Anyone alive to remember Harold Ballard will want to watch this for sure. Well, that's great to be here, Scott, and thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.